You're listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. This episode features audio from a previously aired live video webcast. Welcome to Sagas and Sass Season 3. I'm Tara, along with fellow hosts Jonathan and Nami. This episode will cover parts 1 and 2 of The Fall of Babel, the fourth and final installment in Josiah Bancroft's Books of Babel series. If you're watching live, join us in the chat or after the fact, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Sagas and Sass to continue the conversation. And just a reminder, the views expressed in this show are those of the host's individuals and do not necessarily represent the show as a whole. Hey, hey. Are we all okay after everything that happened in the Hod King? Do we need a moment still to digest everything that's going on? Do we need a reminder of where everyone is in the, oh, never mind? Because right now, the important thing is, remember Adam and the sparking people? Seriously, the fall of Babel takes us into the Wayback Machine as the first, like, nearly 200 pages is all about Adam trying his best to A, survive, and B, figure out what the hell is going on at the very tippy top of the tower. And to be honest, it's a lot. Because he is brought to a place called Nebos that is this weird pseudo-paradise where machines do all of the work and there are gardens of fruits and vegetables just existing for the picking and everyone just gets to be artists and it sounds like a paradise, right? Only because he's an outsider, he's basically put on trial, and apparently the only person who can help decide whether he lives or dies is Ida Alode, who created what is essentially an art installation based on his life. So, thanks to Ida, they decide that Adam can live, though he's basically tethered to Ida's daughter, Runa, who has been charged with keeping an eye on him. And soon he finds out that there is so much more going on here, as Adam and we as readers are waiting to figure out how the fuck this woman knows everything about him. We find out that the Hods have basically been trucking their way up through the tower to eventually give sacrifices to the Nebosans, the vast majority of which end up in a giant storage room. And then when Adam is required to do a Lumen Guard patrol, the Lumen Guard being the official name for the sparking people, someone sends a baby over. And rather than let the Nebosans kill it, which is what they decide they're going to do, Adam offers to return it to the Hods at the top of the Black Trail himself. This is when he discovers that there are thousands of orphans living on the other side, as it were. Knowing how easy life is in Nebos and how much stuff and space they have, Adam promises that he will try to do something for the orphans and returns to Nebos with this purpose in mind. Soon enough, Adam, with the help of Runa and Ossian, the keeper of the Warren, aka Nebos's many-room storage area, is secretly shuttling the orphans into Nebos and hiding them in said Warren. Adam and Runa concoct a not-so-fake romance as part of their plot to disguise what they're really doing, but of course, nothing can last forever. Eventually, Elrin, who is Ida's son and therefore Runa's brother, discovers what they've been up to. He tells Ida, who all this time has been pissed off about Runa and Adam because she has a thing for Adam, and a confrontation ensues. Ida admits she wants to pluck out Adam's other eye and then take care of him for the rest of his life. Double, no, triple, ew. But thankfully, Runa and Adam win the day. Ida dies. Elrin sacrifices himself in a very stupid attempt to rescue her. And Adam is able to show the captain of the Lumen Guard a recording of the Bricklayer's murder that reveals the Bricklayer's true plan for Nebos, that being a place that welcomes Hods into its embrace. Unfortunately, like the Nebosan who murdered the Bricklayer, not all the people in this little paradise like that idea or the fact that they now have thousands of orphans to deal with. And so we leave Adam and Runa awaiting their fate. 
because it's time to catch up with Senlin in the belly of the beast. The beast being the hot king, of course. But you know what? Despite this series kicking off with a book called Senlin Ascends, it turns out that we can sum up his first four fall of Babel chapters with a simple bullet list. Senlin becomes a model stepper. Marat takes notice and moves Senlin up in the ranks. Turns out Marat actually does have the use of his legs. Oh, and also has four other weightmen working for him. Senlin realizes Moret is kind of obsessed with him. The Hod King is damaged when they begin their attempt to climb the tower, and it gets in a fight with the state of the art. This leads to them having to burrow back inside the tower and dig their way up instead. Moret is not happy. Senlin tricks his way into being able to send a message to Fingol with a very basic and questionable sabotage plan. However, that plan almost works, only it turns out that there is a Hod prince nestled inside the Hod king, and after murdering a bunch of Hods who saw him stand on his own two legs, Merritt has his wakeman pilot the little Hod prince, which they call the Ardennes, away from the scene of the Hod king's destruction and up through the last bit of the tower. And thus, Senlin ends up back in the Sphinx's lair, still Marat's prisoner, and with seemingly little to no hope of changing his future, what is very possibly, nay, very likely going to be a short one, as far as he can tell. So now that we've got Senlin out of the way, we finally touch base with the intrepid crew of the state of the art. We, we've been with and wait for it, a tea party. Okay, there's tea, but it's not really a party. Byron wants it to be, but Irene is moping. Anne is trying to calm a crying baby Olivet. Maria is exhausted. Valletta is uttering to herself. And then when Byron insists that Valletta actually drink some tea, she gets very sick, and they have to rush to dose her with the Sphinx's medium. And we find out from not just this scene, but from Redelman's own seeming concern that while Valletta is still, in a way, alive, she's not by any means out of danger. All of this combined with the arrival of a messenger selling copies of the Acorn, a gospel yet important publication that is apparently spreading word that the state of the art is crewed by monsters and abominations who eat human infants. This combined with the earlier scene led to Edith finally sitting everyone down and telling them everything she's been holding back, including the lightning sea that will level the tower if it's allowed to explode. Clearly, they have no choice but to continue on with their attempt to collect as many copies of the bricklayer's granddaughter as they can, and so they make their way to the gambling den that is Port Fortuity, where at first it appears that they will be successful in their endeavor, only to discover that the painting is being stolen as they are on their way to collect it. Valletta chases after the hod who has taken the painting, but he gets away, and just as she's about to dive into a hole in the wall after him, because, by the way, she seems to somehow have even less of a sense of preservation now, the Hod King comes bursting forth and begins laying waste to the port. The state of the art and all of the crew, thankfully, escape and launch the aforementioned attack on the Hod King, but are unfortunately rebuffed, though, again, as previously mentioned, not without causing quite a bit of damage to the giant burrowing engine. But sadly, they don't know that. Unfortunately, it's soon after that they discovered that the ship's observatory is actually an awesome interactive map, and it shows that Senlin, because of that little bug that he swallowed, like back in book two, what is time, is in fact inside the Hot King? Ah! Worrisome as this is, though, they still have a job to do, and so it's on to the cistern ringdom to hopefully finally get a painting of their own. Which they do! but not without cost. They run into the Hot King again. Edith gets into a fight with two of Marat's Wakemen and barely makes it out alive. And Irene and Valletta fought, fight off a third Wakeman, a weird human mechanical spider hybrid named Delis, who ends up cutting off one of Valletta's 
hands. So even though they stumble back to the ship, painting quite literally in hand, <laughs> they do so battered, bruised, and tailed by a bunch of injured refugees. After struggling to offload said injured refugees to several Ringdom's hospitals, and all the while noticing the Hod King's slow but constant crawl up the tower, they come up with a plan to lay a trap for Marat. As they're plotting, Valetta discovers that she can utilize their copy of the Bricklayer's Daughter to essentially visit the past. She actually gets to talk to the Bricklayer himself and the Sphinx, who makes an odd comment that makes it sound as if there's more to, than one tower, and then proceeds to try to give her vitally important information. But then Valetta is yanked back to the present, and anyway, it's time for them to visit the Ringdom of Cilicia, and hopefully stop the Hot King's ascent with their trap. Now, Cilicia turns out to be a cesspool. <laughs> Alliteration! And we mean that quite literally. Its people are fleeing, and the whole place is full of crud and clogworms. Yet another one of the towers, not, not intended to be dangerous, but evolved to be dangerous local fauna. So Edith Valletta, Iron, and Redelman, let's call them uh, Team A, have quite a lot to contend with as they wait the Hot King's arrival. Meanwhile, on the state of the art, Maria, Byron, and Anne, our unlikely but no less amazing Team B, have their own major problem. That being the sudden arrival of fucking William H. Pell, who shoots Byron with a crossbow, threatens Maria, obviously, and then gives chase to Anne. Like, like straight up in like a, like a hunt. Gross. We won't bother you with the details because seriously, fuck that guy. And in the end, our trio of unlikely heroes wins the day thanks to some slight blunder blundering and unexpected teamwork. They're all alive, and Pell is shot. Go Team B. As for Team A, they do in fact confront the Hot King, but as per the usual with this series, things don't quite go as planned. Redelman doesn't even get to set off his bomb because Senlin and Fingol set their sabotage plan in motion first. While the Hot King is destroyed, as we already revealed, Marat and his Wakeman, with Senlin kidnapped, escape. And this, dear readers, is the end of our summary. So not the end of the book, of course, but boy, do we have a lot to discuss. Okay, so part one, the Daredevil's brother, and it also includes the first chapter. I'm calling it chapters of From the Belly of the Beast because even though they're kind of separated out, they're, they're only labeled as like I don't know. There's sections, I guess. Whatever. It doesn't matter. So starting from the very beginning, honestly, I was surprised that I was as intrigued by what was going on with Adam as I as I felt. I thought I'd be so focused on catching up with everyone else that I wouldn't care about him. But Bancroft did a really great job pulling me back into Adam's part of the story. So I wanted to talk quite a bit about this because it does constitute the first like nearly 200 pages of the book. Yeah, I was actually and... really interested to see that so many people online like didn't super vibe with this part. Yeah. I actually really liked it because my whole thing was that like out of disappearing and then getting nothing of him in the whole last book was one of my big questions. And I truthfully had not expected to get so much payoff in terms of Adam's story. I thought Adam was like gone for good or we weren't going to hear from him until like the end. So the fact that we like opened this book with like answers to what the Sparkmen are and like what's going on at the top. Like I thought that was going to be the end reveal. And the fact that we got it first, I was like super thrown. I was like, okay, wait, if this is the big reveal of what's at the top of the tower, what is the actual big reveal at the end of the series? And so that's sort of like. Well, I think it's what's 
I think it's what's through what I'm assuming is going to be some sort of tunnel of into time and or space. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I've like, a rainbow bridge, but I don't know where it goes. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, when I was looking back through, I, I read this. I actually started reading this on the flight to Hawaii for my honeymoon earlier this month, and finished it very soon. I didn't have much time to read while I was there, but I finished it very soon after I returned because I like plowed through this book and I don't want to touch on the end or at all, but there's a lot more of Adam just kind of wandering around with the Lumen Guard than I had really remembered them being there being. And then he finally gets into Nebos, Nebos, I don't know how to, and you listen to the audiobook, not Nebos. It's Nebos, okay. So he gets into Nebos, and there's the whole weird, like, they know everything about, they know all these crazy things about his life, but they're like, oh, you're not really what we expected at the same time. And then you find out that two of the Lumengard, uh, that being Elrin and his sister Runa, are the children of the woman who has created this sort of recreation of Adam's life. And you spend most of the first, you know, most of this part about Adam kind of wondering like what the heck, like how the heck it was done. Cause it's not, it's not explained until quite a bit in, but holy shit. They used his eye to reconstruct his life story? Like, what is wrong with this woman? I think one of the things that, like, really struck me with this part was, like, all of the commentary on, like, what a society, like, that is essentially in stagnation can devolve to Mm -hmm. if they, like, are, like, simultaneously not making progress of their own and also not letting others into their progress and like that whole like thing there but the other thing or rather like the thing that comes from that that like answered a question that I didn't even know that I had was like where did the eye taking machines come from because like you know clearly like every bit of technology in this tower was from the sphinx and from the bricklayer but like every single thing that they're using it's usually pretty obvious like what the intended like good and pure use of this technology was except for the eye stealer the eye stealer was the only thing that i could have looked at and been like no that's just an evil thing why why do you have an evil thing and like knowing now that it was like only meant to be used on dead people with their permission to like store their knowledge for future generations i'm like oh my god like that's such an amazing thing to have like imagine that resource and then i'm like and we would do with it exactly what these what the Nbosians are doing like torture device immediately way to make like shitty films oh well it's not it's not so much the nebosans that start it it's it's the people in the parlor that like they they feel like they have to meet a quota and even when the nebosans are like please stop the people in the parlor are like but no like they're not getting anything out of this right they're, they're getting nothing out of this other than this assumption. Fulfilling All I could imagine, like, during that exchange was, like, the Nebosians being, like, stop sending us eyes. And the partner being, like, okay, I see what you're doing. <laughs> Here's some more. Exactly. They're, like, no, we can't. This is, like, this is, like, our goal. This is what we're supposed to do. And it's, like, how did they even... This is... 
well, it's like, like the more I read into this series, the more the series is just playing out as a really shitty game of telephone. Except <laughs> like it was telephone with like a government over many years, and I'm like, oh, so it's what happens to all governments because you start off with these honorable ideals, and then shit gets fucked. And then, like, every single thing that we're seeing in every layer of the tower is, like, they all had these, like, honorable ideals and this, like, amazing way of, like, cooperation and, like, society and enlightenment and, like, all of this that they were going to have in the tower. And as, like, I'm assuming it's been something around, like, 150 or 200 years now. And as all of that time has gone by, they've, like, lost. They they did not understand the assignment. And, and, no, and there's nobody there. The Sphinx isn't coming back and saying, no, you're doing this wrong too, which is, that's, that's an entirely different issue. But... And the other thing though, that like, I, I want to like, that like I was thinking about a lot though, is like, it's really easy to, I sympathize with the Sphinx a lot in all of this. Cause like, it's very understandable to look at how the tower, like what the tower has become and been like, these people can't be fixed. And it's also very easy to not see changes that are happening for the worse and not stop them in time until they are a snowball. And then they snowball to a point where you can't fix them anymore. So that whole thing, like, I really get how she ended up, like, where she is. Because I also very much stand by your book one theory now, or what was it, book two theory? What is time? Your early theory that the Sphinx is the bricklayer's granddaughter. Because now I'm like, yep, yep, there it is she is and it's like oh man like it it sucks like having like that sort of like legacy on yourself and that expectation of on yourself when you're not a power hungry person and you only want good things and then having to maintain the good when everything tends towards chaos because like universal laws of entropy wait is this a physics class i don't know what's happening anymore but yeah no I don't think what she did was right, retreating from the world. I think she could have still tried, but like, also she's 150 years old and I'm, you know, tired at 27. So I guess I vibe. <laughs> but she didn't, she also didn't have enough allies, right? I mean, somehow she's lost her allies. So she oh, doesn't yeah. have the power to really make the change. Yeah, it makes me wonder, you know, like when things started to devolve for her, how things started to devolve for her. I kind of want like just like a whole like the Sphinx's life side story of just like shit getting fucked for her, even though that's pretty depressing. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I really just want to know, like, to me, this sounds so sad, but like the journey of somebody from like a bright eyed, bushy tailed like youth into somebody who's so disillusioned with the world that they will lock themselves up in a tower. Literally well, really very intelligent too. Exactly. Very intelligent. Yeah. And it's all of this that just makes me wonder like what happened to you? What happened to you? Okay. Well, all that said, gosh, we're jump we're jumping ahead so, 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 so much because me again. who even knows? But um uh so the everything that's going on in Nebos, I and and also I want to get back to I really liked Runa a lot. Mm -hmm. I love Runa. Like I love that she's always been kind of jaded about things, and she, ha you know, I don't know if she. It's hard to say if she's recognized her privilege for a while or if she comes 
I think she, I think she recognized it a little bit beforehand because she knew what, like the Hods were bringing the stuff to the top of the tower, and it was just getting thrown into a giant storage room. And she was like, "I think she was also one of the people. I think she also was saying that she like hates the videos and not just. Oh yeah, yeah, the scintillations as they call them. Yeah, but that's because, but that's because she's a painter, right? I mean, that's you know different, Uh, different art medium. No, I, I think it's, I think it's because she she understands because because her father hit one of his eyes was used properly because he was studying bugs or whatever right and so she knows what they're supposed to be used for and she sees this as like a gross like conflagration of what the real purpose is and also i think she didn't like her mother for a lot of other reasons to begin with Good, re- good reason to you. But I, I do just, I really love that regardless of when she starts to recognize her privilege, she very clearly recognized at least some of it before Adam even meets her. And then when she really starts talking to him and sees, you know, how things are and, and the whole thing with the orphans and everything, she not only recognizes it so much more, but she does something about it, right? And mm-hmm. not in a, I, I don't know. I also love the fact that she lives in a, what is essentially a hovel with her dog. Like, my girl. <laughs> my girl. I understand like, your life. <laughs> the like, two-second earthquake when, like, Adam runs out of the house holding the oh. dog. And she's like, okay, yeah, I can trust you now. I was like, vibes, though. Like, Man tried to save your dog. Like y'all are BFFs now. Yeah, I, I mean seriously, I would fall in love with you immediately for that too. The way to a girl's heart is to save her dog or cat or literally any pet. I think, but the way to a human's heart is to just save their dog, no matter yeah. or or pet. Save pets get get love. What? Well, Save, save them legitimately, not, uh, you know, performative charity and stuff like that. Just saying. But <laughs> I really, really liked Runa. And, and part of the reason I like her, but also like, I like Ossian as well. Uh, and then we find out later on that he was also an orphan that was sent over and they couldn't quite decide what to do to him or do with him. So they keep him rather than murder him. So at some point, there was enough people there that were like, yeah, okay, we won't murder a child. But not anymore. <laughs> but I like Ossian. He seems really cool. And I just want to live his life. Just like right? junk drawer, but house. Oh, God, <laughs> am I a hoarder? <laughs> I, oh. I've seen the comments your mother leaves on your statuses about needing items like little good. mini frog planters. So yes, frog planter, and yes, I did buy it. It is. Ah. Cute. I will be putting a pothos in it. It is so cute. I need it. And and you know, I think I, I was I was disappointed in. I was really disappointed in Elrin though, because oh, he yeah. seemed so congenial, right? Well, I think it was like one of like for me it was a very like realistic depiction of friendly and nice seeming people because this world is like i've found so many people who just 
seem like they're nice and seem like they're friendly and they're so easygoing. And you feel like, okay, this is a good moral person. But when it comes down to it, it turns out they're really not. And I've like, (laughs) and like the, the fact is that society values politeness and niceness so much that we have been conditioned to think that being polite or being nice on and that and just being those things is enough to be a moral person when it's really not you can be polite and nice and you can also have horrific beliefs and do horrific things and just by being polite and nice you can hide all of those things and people are less likely to come at you for having those terrible beliefs because you've got that facade of like societal proprietariness you know what I mean, to hide behind. And I think that's like such a great example of what Elrond is because, you know, like you start the Adam section being like, okay, our ally is Elrond because he's nice. Our enemy is Runa because she hates your guts. And like, and like, it turns out that all along that's super flipped because Elrond may be really nice to you, but he's also kind of a bigot. And like, he's also a bigot and like very ready to just like live in his like, like, hidden utopia and never share any of their unlimited resources that they cannot use up all their own with other people and he can see human suffering and just go whatever in the face of it whereas um Bruna Bruna wow I just completely lost her name it had been like 30 seconds since I said it <laughs> but whereas Bruna even though I I want to say like based off of her character it's very likely that she came to notice and dislike these things about Nebos because of her dislike of her mother and I suspect that's part of why she has all of this like like insight on why her society is negative because she already hates where she is because she hates her mother and like you know that's how it works sometimes it takes hating something of like a place that you're in that's integral to it to start noticing all the other things that are bad with it and i think that's part of why like her whole thing about disliking scintillations i think it stems from i dislike this because my mom does it and then it became a wait a second i dislike this and i'm gonna look at this more and yep nope i still dislike it oh shit it's actually pretty horrific and like so like the fact that like despite the fact that like bruna has that like mean outside and that like a grumpy shell and everything like she's the one who's really the good person and it's like I will say so many times the person who's like meaner on the surface online has tended to be the nicer person when it actually comes to like, you know, morality and not being a shitty person because the number of polite racists, oh God, Tony. (laughs) And then the ones who are like, well, I'm being polite, so you shouldn't be mean to me. And I'm like, I think you're misconstruing what meanness is in this case, like bye bud. Sorry. So uh, I'm she's great. Elrin can eat my shoe. Elrin is also a huge mama's boy. Clearly, he can eat my whole entire shoe. Yeah. He he was pretty much a jackass. <laughs> I mean, Jonathan, what were because you you haven't talked much at all about this, and I know this is the part of the book you actually read. So <laughs> what? <laughs> What what were your thoughts on everything that's going on in Nebos? On I don't know anything, everything. I was most taken aback by yes, how backwards they how they were devolving essentially. And Nami mentioned it a little earlier. I mean, here they had they had a, a everything, but it seems like and you know, unfortunately, I see some parallels to American society. They just didn't want to put in the work anymore. So, so as the engineers died out, it was easier to become a an artist or a 
a bad poet or a, <laughs> a television producer or their equivalent of television producer or a director than it was to do something useful. Um, and yes, there is use for in our society for entertainment, and I certainly consume enough of it myself. But if everyone is doing nothing but producing entertainment, the society is in trouble. And I just thought that was sort of interesting to to see how a society that in theory had everything just self-destructs like it did in what, three generations or four generations. I called it a pseudo paradise in the review because there's so many things about this, right? That seem great. They have machines that take care of all of their basic needs and they have, like I said, like fruits and vegetables growing everywhere just for the picking. And, and you can, you know, let's say your yard has blueberries and somebody else's yard has, I don't know, Avocados. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. And funny thing, actually, out here, a lot of people have random fruit trees growing in their yard. So there's often like in our neighborhood group, like, hey, my lemon tree is full. If anybody wants lemons, please come take them. And stuff like that. Yeah, because like they ain't ever gonna use an entire tree full full of lemons for one house, right? Are you sure? (laughs) I mean, they can drink a lot of lemonade. But it's really like I, there's some aspects of it that are like, oh my gosh, this is so great. But then, and also the idea that people kind of get to like all the basic stuff is taken care of. So they can all be artists if they want. The problem with that is apparently everybody has chosen to be some sort of artist and most of them suck. And <laughs> there's there's the one, the captain of the Lumengard. I know that he is only serving a term and he's at the end of this part, he's kind of like, you know, I've been wanting to retire or something like that, I think. Um, but they they know that he paints these little miniatures, right? But he's been, he's clearly been doing a job for a very long time. And he, I, I think that, I don't know if he felt that he had to, or if there was a part of him that wanted to, but I'll be honest, like, I, I write, I think of myself as a writer. I've published two books. I love writing, but I don't know if I could do that 24 seven. Like, I, I don't, I don't know if I could not have any other pursuit, particularly, you know, now that I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing for work, working in, you know, the continuing medical education field. I, I'm not sure I could go back to just sitting in a, at a computer and trying to write all day. Like I did like I've done previously in, in a couple like short unemployed periods, because I know that there's something I'm good at that can actually make a difference. Um, and I, and, and I'm not saying that artists and, and, and writing and everything can't, but what I'm saying is, I mean, and, and this kind of goes back to what Nami was saying about a society that becomes stagnant, you know, not all of them are good at what they do. You know what I mean? Clearly Ida alone is a fucking nutcase. So, yeah, but she was apparently good at what she did. I mean, I, what what she did might be horrific and evil, but people uh, liking it and her being talented are two very different things. Because here's the other thing: she she yes. she also all she's doing is cutting, like taking scenes from someone's life and cutting them into a false narrative. But yeah, isn't I mean, that done like, regularly in the real world? Oh, for sure. <laughs> but doesn't mean it's good. 
<laughs> I mean, just and still not have a good vision. But I, I mean, I'm even talking about Hollywood. I mean, you you when they you watch these biopics and they're what I call pseudo history, they're they're cool, they're entertaining, but they they don't really necessarily follow history per se, or they certainly take their liberties. I mean, to tell a story, to tell a story the filmmaker wants to tell. I mean, I, I just, think the reason Ida was so like good is because she was able to do things that other people weren't because like it looks like the only reason she was able to chop up and like tell the story in the way she did was because she had like that bricklayer's eye right and if it wasn't for that she wouldn't have been able to do it and she wasn't really a visionary <laughs> she secretly had a magic button she she had she was george a, lucas she had a, she had technology that others did not she had editing software on her computer and everybody else was just trying to um, edit it on their phone in the uh, photos yeah. app. That's what it was. Like she wasn't actually good. I think she just had something different because she had different technology. And I think the other thing is that like, it takes a, it takes a very specific type of person to be like a professional artist and to find mm -hmm. satisfaction in that. And not all people are that. And I think the majority of people are the kind of person that find that easily is bored without without being challenged and the problem is that in order to be a good artist and a good like self-employed creative person you need to be giving yourself new challenges and new goals and most people are not able to do that most people are not able to have the like discipline to challenge themselves and to keep themselves interested in something like that so most people in this sort of situation even though it seems ideal of like you get to be creative and do whatever you want most people will just stagnate because they'll get bored and then they'll stop feeling motivated to challenge themselves and then they'll just do nothing aka what i've done every few times i've been unemployed i've been real happy for like two weeks so that i've been like all right i'm real fucking bored like what now what now what now and this is a whole society where except for like the top 2% of artists, every other person has been like, what now? Except they've been doing that for like 150 years. And then also at the same time, they decided we hate other people. Don't make me second guess the idea of retiring in the next couple of years. <laughs> Listen, John, as long as you find like multiple things that you want to do with your time, that's all that matters, you know? <laughs> well, and... I mean, and again, here's the thing, like she, she's just because the people of Nebos like what she produced doesn't mean she's good at what she did because again, she's a, ha she's a hack. She took Adam's eye and spliced his story into her, like what she felt the narrative was or should be, which is you know, there's some parts of it for sure that are true and correct, but I, I mean, as we saw from the moment her children meet Adam, they're like, you're not Adam. You don't act anything like, well, well, Elrin is like, well, you're Adam, but you're not really like him. And Rune is like, you're not Adam. You're nothing like him. So, and he, it, it's, it's just very like, I mean, and then, oh my gosh. Yeah. In the end, like her whole goal is to pluck out his other eyes so that she can finish his story in her, <laughs> in her quote unquote words, <laughs> and then, uh, like, take care of him for the rest of his life. I'm right. Whole thing just. Ida me. is like the number one creep, and I dislike her so much. And I think you know it's 
it's kind of like a further, again, it's like a further commentary on like what society will like if they're given a bunch of shitty choices, which is that like society, <laughs> exactly, right? It's like, we're always going to like the shiny new thing, whether it's actually a good thing. We just like it because it's new. We like the uh, new uh, app because it's new. It doesn't matter if it's better. It's just like, oh, it's shiny. It's new. We want it. And like, that's the thing with Ida. And that's like kind of like what I, what I like in a way, that's like the perspective that I liked about her whole character. Cause like, as Tara said, like, it's clear she's not good at anything. Like she's not her, she's not like talented. She is a hack. She's also a terrible human being, but that notwithstanding, mm -hmm. even if she was the greatest, like the kindest, goodest person in the world, most morally upright, up upstanding and she did this and there was like no moral badness behind these scintillations like she would still be a terrible artist because she's not actually doing anything like it's she's a hack she's just using tools that other people don't have that she didn't invent herself that she stole it would be another thing if she had created this tool on her own and then used that because that is also a skill and that is a part of creativity but she's a hack and she's a terrible person and like the fact that like their society loves her stuff so much just shows that like people just want to be like entertained and sometimes entertainment is shitty cough the room cough but like sometimes it's like shitty in like not a funny way and people still like things and like it's just god so much commentary on art and like the value of art and how people will like flock to bad art even if it's bad just because it's new and people will like entertaining things just because they're entertaining even if they're like bad and like morally bad just lots of good stuff there so much good stuff in Mibos. i do not want to live there sounds terrible yeah, it's just like it, it was just like going growing up in the 70s and 80s where you had three channels and we were so desperate for genre we would shows we would watch the worst things i mean i've gone back and watched some of the stuff that we loved and it's like oh my god so you're absolutely right humans have a great capacity to enjoy shit also, let's not even talk about the people who were literally wearing like mirrors or something so that they could like view themselves all the time. And this is a popular thing. It wasn't just one person. I wish to point out though that specifically the one man who's doing this is also very explicitly a professional voyeur. You say professional voyeur. I just, just thought of him as a, you know, a, a purveyor of pornography, but. Mm. See, yes, but then you get down to the way that he makes it. And it's just, like, at first I'm like, yeah, sure, Mansell's porn, good for you, bud. But then, but then the fact that it is non-consensual porn on every single level. Well, I, yeah, but the whole thing is, all of these are non-consensual things on every single level. I mean, that... Oh, it, yeah. It, it's not just the the, the erotic stuff. It... And so I was actually thinking about the morality of this. You know, it's not the Nebotians. They're not the ones taking the eyes, but they're still using the eyes. Well, and but that's only been a recent thing too. But that's kind of, I mean, as we talked about already, that's kind of like, it's a problem with the parlor and also a problem with the Nebotians. And then there's that eyepiece thing that Adam ends up with. I, it, it. I can't remember what it's called, but it's the, the bridal tie. Yeah, Ida yeah, was wearing eye. it and she like stole it from no no no. It's like a well, yeah, but it, it's not his eye, it's like a it's like a Yeah, no, no, know. that is what the tool is called. The tool is called it's the Brickler's oh, okay. eye. Didn't she get it out of the warehouse? 13? Uh, the, the library, the library. The yeah, library. Okay. 
So yeah, so right, he ends right. up with that. So I guess we'll have to see if anything comes of that because oh, something has to come with it. There's no they spent too much time on it. it I mean, it, unless the thing that comes of it is just uh, him plugging it into the mechanical librarian and oh my gosh and also just one quick thing because we have so much we have other stuff to talk about but one quick thing that the mechanical librarian and how he like recites everybody's name and like I status I, I just I whether they have an overdue library book yes I want to <laughs> see like I want to see this made into a move like into a series of movies or a tv show or something just for things like like not this isn't the first thing I've thought of in that respect, but like just for things like this, because it was one of those just things where every time, you know, it came up where he's just the the, the mechanical librarians reciting these things like <laughs> and you could just and Adam's like, Oh, everybody's rolling their eyes, he's taking forever to do this. I don't know. It was just I love him so much. Bancroft has a very he's he has a sense of humor that very much appeals to me. So. Yeah, but one thing I do want to clarify though, Adam still has the bricklayer's eye, and nobody yeah. knows about it. What he what he has plugged okay, into okay, okay. the robot is the eye of the person who witnessed the bricklayer's murder. Okay, and or well, I don't know if he even plugged it in. I think he just requested it because he has no. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because he walked in and they were like, you have zero, you know, restrictions, and it's like, yeah, he, whatever I guess that he is, donated he still an has eye. The eye. So like. No, no. I was also a little confused about that because the whole time I thought it was like the bricklayer's actual physical eyeball. And then it turned out it was like a piece of technology that was also called an eye in a society that had a bunch of just, you know, spare eyeballs sitting around. And I'm like, <laughs> hmm, this is confusing, but it's okay. We got there eventually. Gotta catch them all. Eyeballs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Okay. That's, that's the Nemosians theme song. So I don't really have much to say about what is going on with Senlin so far in this book. Senlin's part. But he's, a, he's such a fine stepper. He's so good at stepping. Steps so good. He stepped so good that he stepped his way right up into the important. Stepped his way to the top. Yeah. Climb that ladder, boy. I think it was, once again, like Senlin's part was like, an unlikely series of Senlin actually somehow managing to do the thing he intended to do somehow. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand how he actually pulled it off, but I see how he pulled it off. And I'm still sitting here, like scratching my head, like, buddy, you really did that? Okay. Dang. And like, it's, it's interesting. Cause like all the insights we get about Mara and his, Marat and his Wakeman and all of that, it was all like really cool stuff. But like, it's so funny because like in the, like, with the greater moral commentary and the greater like insight about like with Adam's part and the like greater number of characters that we care about in the um, arm of the Sphinx part, Stenlin's part was like less compelling because of that to me. Like mm -hmm. I liked it all. I was never bored while listening to it. Mm -hmm. And I actually enjoyed the parts that I listened to, but I don't really have a lot of commentary about it just because 
this is one of those parts where like it really was tell 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 because Senlin is such a telly character like Adam's parts were interesting to me because Adam's a fucking idiot and he doesn't notice things right away so I'm like looking at the society and like Adam's having his own crisis and I'm noticing other things and I'm like oh that's cool that's cool that's cool and like meanwhile Senlin's already having like the moral response to everything that I would have to a thing that was happening in the book and like he's he's like microanalyzing like Marat's sociopathy sociopathy which I would be doing in my head, but then mm. doing it on the page for me, and I'm like, "All right, cool, no comments. You're correct, bud." By <laughs> like, <laughs> and like, so I wasn't bored at all. In a way, I was like very entertained because like every single time, like Marat does something absolutely unhinged, and Senlin's like witnessing it in a book. You'd normally like with most characters, you just see them do the unhinged thing, and the like protagonist would witness it and be like, "Huh, wow, that's unhinged. Let's move on." And Senlin's like, "Huh, wow, that's." unhinged let's analyze every little bit of why that's unhinged first because i love the sound of my own voice in my brain and i love sunlun for that <laughs> so do we do we think Mar well i'm pretty sure marat does not know about the impending doom of the tower but if he oh, no, did definitely does but not. if he did do you think he would be more helpful no probably not he would probably, he seems a sort of egotistical, narcissistic sociopath that would think that by him taking control, he could automatically fix it. Mm -hmm. That's the yeah. vibe that I get from him. To him, he's untouchable. He is the, he's like the savior. He is supposed to be the king. He is supposed to be on top. Therefore, any problems of any sort would be solved by him being on top. Psycho. I think that the to me, the most interesting Parts and and I'm with you, Nami. Like I, I wasn't not interested in reading Senlin stuff in this book by any means. But Senlin's the main character. <laughs> well, he was. I, it, this, it feels it feels very Ned Stark only without like, killing him, right? But he's sidelined quite a bit from. I mean, really, from like halfway through the second book. So he hasn't been the main character for a very long time. Or maybe the end of the second book. I think I halfway. No, half, I'm, th I'm thinking of the hacking. Halfway through the third book, like there were other POVs starting in the second book for sure, and then halfway through the third book, it was like his stuff was just kind. Of, as soon as he entered the Black Trail, his stuff was kind of an additive, right? So I, I was way more interested in what was going on with him in this book than I was when he, from like the point he entered the Black Trail in book three, but. I think that the, the stuff I was most interested about in his chapters was the things, like Nami said, the things we learn about Marat through his eyes. And also, I mean, the things we learn about the people, the, the Wakemen who are part of Marat's team, because nobody, the Hods don't know about this. Senlin only knows because he was, you know, pulled up that ladder Marat's pet project. Yeah, and he's got these these four Wakemen who were, you know, clearly for whatever reason they're they're not involved with the ringdoms they were assigned to anymore, and they're all very. I mean, how, is it Delith or Delith? Delith. Delith. Delith was like, I'm still just what the fuck about her because she's got the spider legs. And she's, but she's got apparently, she's got a human form, a top 
portion human form, but it's inside, like encased inside of glass. Yeah, because her top human form, from my understanding, is a corpse. Yeah. She needs the glass to like sort of like maintain the environment and prevent rotting is what I was interpreting there. I, I don't know what, I don't know for sure. It's just fucking um, wild, honestly. I was very ready to just be like, all right, spider lady, half a glass, let's go. Like, all right, she's, cool. She's definitely got to be one of the earliest Wakemen. I mean, they also, they talk about where she came from, right? She came from. She was from the Silk Gardens, right? right? And, and so they actually. Herd the spider eaters or something. Yeah, she was to herd the spider eaters. And I believe they do explicitly mention that she was one of the earlier Wakemans because like. She was apparently like they made it sound like she's been there for a very long time, and then, and like it also seems like she was another one of like the animal creations of the Sphinx. Like I don't know, she has like she has such like such human reaction. Like she's she's blows on the glass and gross like like writes like crude things. (laughs) I think I think the thing is. That was hilarious, by the way. I love that about her. I think she's lovely. Like, 11 out of 10 would marry this dead half-spider lady. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) So the reason I believe that she is, you know, because we demonstrate, like, the Sphinx has clearly demonstrated that she can create, like, like, partial, like, automatons and cyborgs out of Mm -hmm. robotic and animal components and give them human levels of intelligence aka byron she also demonstrated that like these creatures even if they end up not being smart like ferdinand they can still communicate in a way that is like understandable to other humans so i think and i think this also makes the most sense with marat's narrative about how he found delith because it because the way that he describes her always describes her as subhuman and again it's possible that this is because like you know marat's a shit face shit bag and he just never viewed her as human because he's a shit bag but what i suspect more than anything is especially because the human part of her is a corpse is that i think she is um more spider than person because she because otherwise it's a little cruel and this is also a possibility of like you know the sphinx's oversight and like the bricklayer's oversight because otherwise like making a person live in solidarity to hurts to herd spiders in the silk gardens is a bit cruel you know and like giving a person grotesque spider legs even though it would be effective for a job and then expecting them to be able to live in society is a bit cruel and every single one of the other wakemans that we've seen even though they have been like you know, clearly augmented cyber kinetic steam beings, they have also been, you know, made in a human shape. So it seems a very weird choice that she would have been deliberately remade in a not human shape unless that was her original shape. Mm. What I was thinking. But also this is very much me being like, God, I hope they didn't just make this lady into a spider and tell her to hurt spiders for the rest of her life. I hope. Yeah, it, it, it's it's definitely something that I went, like, I bandied back and forth. Like, I, I, I don't know. May, hopefully we'll get to know a little bit more about what she is. And I agree. Like, I like, I liked a lot of the Wakemen mm-hmm. that are with Marat. And it's sad because. I love Gage. It's it, it's very much a. Gage. 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 It's hilarious. And like. And, like, and Kale, Sale, how do you say it? 
Is it Kale? The one that's like a drunkard and mostly a robot, I don't like, but the one with the gorilla yes. arms, I love him. Yeah, that's the one with the the one with the arms is Kale or Sale. I I Kale. the one the, the the robot one, he's Thor? Thor Thorin Thorin something like that. I don't like him. He sucks. The rest of them are pretty cool though. I especially love my spider wife and I love Mr. Gedge because he is just he's 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 very much an academic, knee deep into his academics, and he's like, "Shut the fuck up! I'm the smartest person in the room. Get off my back." And he thinks he's smarter than Marat too. And frankly, he might be. I'm pretty sure he is technology wise. Like, and also Marat's a bit of a psychopath, so like, I'm not really giving him credit as far as his smartness because, like, you know, with the added psycho psychopathy, I'm like a little like disinclined to give him credit. And Gage seems like sane. Mm. And really, really smart, and also just the sort of person that you can manipulate. Yeah, and 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 I think that's the thing. It's like I enjoyed these characters. Like I kept reading and hoping, like maybe one of them would. I don't know. Maybe Senlin would pal up with one of them or something. I don't know. But so, so Jonathan, what about you? Did you did you get far enough to learn enough about these Wakemen that you have feelings about? any of them i don't know did you like like dislike any of them the wakeman yeah i, I never really i didn't really think about him much as main as char major characters yes the spider was funny but other than that it, they weren't in it enough to up to where i read that i cared <laughs> well, in fairness though i feel like a lot of gedge's good parts come a bit later so like yeah I feel like once he starts going fully into her, in his, I'm just a technology dude, but I know everything more than you do. So shut up. Moments that you're you're gonna be like, ah, yes, this dude is amusing. Yeah, I mean the yes, the, I considered him the engineer, not the technology dude, but that's okay. <laughs> nah, I think it's a little bit of both, honestly. Okay, okay. so. Moving on from what's going on with Senlin. Well, I, I don't know. Any, any last bits about that? Because I guess we didn't really talk about the fact that he <laughs> he somehow like worms his way into being able to black out books so that he can send a message to Finn Gull. And it's like this, it's you know. It's such a quintessential Senlin plan at this point that I, I don't even like blink. I'm like, of course, this is what he comes up with. Like, sure, buddy. Sure, Tom. Like, you do you, bud. Yeah, yeah. And then in the end, of, toward the end of like his portion of this, you know, the first two parts of this book, Finn sends the books, the, the selection. Marat sends down to the, the boiler because he's like, I don't want you blacking out the books I actually care about because BT dubs, Marat is like, kill all the books. But then he actually is like reading all the books too. Um so he sends like, down to the boiler room and he's like, send us up some books. And Finn sends, you know, five books who the first letter of each title spells out Maria. And it's just like, don't make me like you again. Like, don't make, don't make me like you, Finn. Cause like, you're, you, like, I know you got a family, a wife and kids and you, you, you had things about you because of that, that were like, I guess, commendable, but like, really you were a bad dude. Like, so oh yeah but, I, I think the funniest thing to me was like just like how quintessential how like 
I felt like I was watching an episode, like listening to an episode of cults because Marat revealing like all of his things was like, yep, and that's what a cult leader does. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Okay, still a bunch to talk about because there's also in between all of these four Senlin chapters, there's everything about what's going on on State of the Art. And there's a lot going on on State of the Art. I, this is a random aside. The egg, the acorn, and I'm forcing myself to say that what I think is properly because for some reason I was raised to say acorn. It's acorn. I know it is, but listen, I'm for sorry. whatever reason, where where I'm from, my family, something, it was it was acorn. Like, and yes, I know it's not right, but it is one of those things that's ingrained in my head that I've my ex used to make fun of me for. He's like, stop calling it an acorn. He also hated how I said hot dog. What? It sounds like hot, it sounds like hot, not hot. Well, if I tell you, this is how I was raised. I don't really have an accent, but there's something about like how have, I never, how have I never heard you say hot dog until this moment? And how is it so weird? But acorn. So so the acorn, I know it's kind of a random aside, but I was a little bit kind of thrown off by the fact that we had never heard about this publication before. So it it was it was a weird and unnecessary plot device. And I really, really, really love these books. And I love Bancroft's writing. And I think he's amazing at a lot of things. But this was one of those things where the two times that it the the acorn I have to really fucking force myself to say it that way. Call it the nut. Yeah. Call it the nut. The the, the two times that it really came into the plot in the first two parts of this book was with the the kid that has been dared to bring them a copy and Edith reads it and it says, you know, they're all monsters and abominations who eat human infants. And it's kind of right at, or it is right after that that she's like, we're going to have tea. And she tells the rest of the quote unquote crew of the state of the art, everything about the lightning sea and the explosion that might happen, et cetera. But I think that what happened with Valida, that could have, that alone absolutely could have led to Edith telling them these things. And then later the editor who is a woman, even though she's still she's still editing it under the name of, I guess, her father. Her because father. yeah, oh, nobody's gonna trust a woman, or whatever. And that's that's something entirely different, whatever. But you know, she pops in and she's like, Yeah, so you should be worried about Duke Pell. And to be honest, I don't think that should have happened. I think that the Duke showing up later would have been a little bit more surprising had it had it not been spelled out to us that he was on his warpath like and it still wouldn't be super surprising because you know and this is something Jonathan and I talked about um I can't remember it was the last episode or the one before that when we were covering the Hog King where Jonathan was like oh he's definitely coming back and I was like, ah, yeah, you're probably right, but I don't want to think about it. <laughs> so I, I, I just, I don't think it was necessary to have that spelled out for us. I think to me, it more served to plug the plot hole of how he shows up 
the main purpose I saw in it was like her commentary on how people are always going to like believe what they want to believe and that things like media are not really going to change it. It's either going to like, con like give you confirmation bias or it's either going to make you scoff at the other. And I thought that was like a really like interesting point that was like, you know, very accurate. And like, it's definitely like clear that like, that's a thing that happens in media and like, you know, with like reporting and with like what people like once somebody thinks something is the truth, like telling them otherwise is not gonna convince them. They're just gonna scoff and be like, oh, you're a liar or you're just going to confirm their like beliefs anyway. So I thought that was like a really interesting like thing that was added there. I also did super feel that it was super random because I don't remember that like publication being addressed at any other point mm -hmm. in the book in the series and i feel like if that had been if like the, it had been like if the publication itself had been had like showed up before like maybe in their pirating days as well it would have like felt less like out of the blue to me but like i think having the acorn show up multiple times made sense because even though she's like yeah duke pell is on this warpath like obviously when it shows up the third time and there's no signal and they're like oh and he looks slightly bigger than a normal boy i'm like all right yeah, I guess. Like, that was the moment i knew it was him but like i also feel like if they didn't have the second part with the editor and being like the duke's on an on a warpath officially like you should know like i feel like i would have been like hmm like i knew he was coming but this feels a bit cheap like how did he find this like how did he how did he get like like how did he do this how did he come up so like i i mostly saw it as like a like a way for the duke to access them and then like a way to also include a comment some commentary on journalism and media and confirmation bias in general so okay that's, yeah yeah you're right because my first thought was okay well he didn't show up with a bunch of warships or whatever he like the the, the editor was like he's building a fleet and i don't know if that was just incorrect information or what or he decided who knows but i do i do think that if this was gonna be a thing the acorn was gonna be a thing i said it i forced myself to say it. i i think that it should have showed up this. just even if it was just once briefly oh yeah right? yeah i also agree i did very much think it was out of the blue like an afterthought yeah it just seemed like it was it very much seemed as though it was a oh shit i need a way to make this work <laughs> it seemed like the one time i could truly see how bancroft needed to insert a plot device into his story whereas yeah. most of the time his writing has been the sort that i cannot see his plot device until it has been executed and then mm -hmm. i can go back and see it this was the only one that i was like this is there's something else going on here that this is being used for because this is too weird and too random to be like just a thing if this is ever made into like a movie series or a show preferably a show i would hope that they have the acorn did it again I can say it right. I have to force. I have to think about it and force myself to do it. But I can do it. I would hope that they would insert the acorn before mm -hmm. this point in the series. Yeah, it's, it's too late an introduction to that plot line. Plot I, device. I, 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 yes, I think so. I, 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 and and I think like what Nami said is right. I think that he realized he'd maybe written himself into a little bit of a corner, and he needed to figure out. He wanted the dupe to come back. And he needed to figure out a way to get him in there. I would love to talk with with the author and ask him some of these things. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'll 
email him. I do, I do have his email. Okay. So that said, we, I guess we, the, let's just get the Duke Pell thing out of the way, even though it kind of happened toward the end of all of the state of the art stuff. Cause it's just whatever, let's get it out of the way. Ew. Like Ding I was dong. like, hello, goodbye, good riddance. But that moment, and I'm sorry, I think Jonathan, this might be because I know you didn't get to quite read as far as as this, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. That moment there, that that those not moment, but there was like a a bunch of pages, I don't remember, a couple dozen, whatever, where I thought Byron was dead. Same. Yeah. I was I really thought he was gone and I was so upset. And then it was only when um, Mario was trying to pull the crossbow out of him that I was like, huh, maybe there's something going on. Maybe he's still around. No, that can't be. That would be too good to be true. And then she runs off. Shit goes down. Shit goes down. And it's like, Byron's back, bitches. And I'm like, yeah. That's it. That's my summary of that section. Byron's back, bitches. Yeah. Can we, I, get, I like, can we get a patch that's shaped like a like a little sticker or a patch that's shaped like a deer and it says Byron's back, bitches. But with only one antler. But with only one antler. Alternatively, a teacup that says that. <laughs> Ooh, yes, a teacup. That would be amazing. That that's a great like merchandising thing. Dear Josiah Bancroft, we would like to see a teacup that says Byron's back, bitches. <laughs> Seriously, I just, I really, I love Byron so, so much. He's a just very good being. He has so much anxiety and he manages it through manners and cookware. And I vibe with that. Seriously. What a good being. Seriously, he is all of us at the beginning of COVID when we were teaching ourselves how ourselves how to bake sourdough bread and just I mean I I've always been I mean I worked in the restaurant industry and I was like a prep chef for many years so like I've always been somebody who really enjoys cooking and learning new things about cooking and trying new things with cooking. So to me, and also I've, I've definitely used that to, I mean, God, I went through a bread phase when I was like at my worst in terms of like depression and anxiety. I went through a bread phase where I made, I could not tell you how many different kinds of bread. And this was like 2014, 2015, way before COVID. Man, kneading that dough, punching that dough, that was, that was some just extra level of therapy. Don't <laughs> knock it until you try it. But yeah, I, I just, I really loved Byron and I was like, I feel like characters have to die, right? But not Byron. He's just a right? bean. It's, it's so funny because like this is one of those series where if the, if the majority or even if many of the main characters died at, by the end, I would feel like, okay, yeah, that makes sense for the world building that we've had. But mm -hmm. this is also a series that since none of them have actually died so far, I would be absolutely devastated if anybody yeah. did it. Like even more than other books, because if you really think about it, we're at book four, we're halfway through book four, not a single main character has died. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of people that worries me. Have died. Oh. And I have a lot of anxiety about it. We lost the dog. Oh yeah, yeah. Ferdinand. And that was yeah, that was very sad for me. I, mean, I don't know if he's a main character, but it was a character. <laughs> I mean, I'd forgotten about Ferdinand. Time to cry. 
Yeah, seriously. I, 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 I did not forget about Ferdinand. I just pushed it out of my brain. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like I have blocked Ferdinand's death from my memory yeah. so as to avoid being sad about it because the good, good train puppy yeah. is dead and I do not know how to deal. So I, I, I do think the end of this book is going to be Senlin as the Sphinx, but. Really? Because I don't know that I think that. I think it's going to be Valletta or Edith. Yeah, I agree. And I think Byron, oh, oh, so you haven't gotten to this point. I'm pretty sure. No, I know, actually, because I was when I was writing the summary earlier, I, Byron tells Edith that the Sphinx was training her up to be his. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that definitely happened. Yeah. 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 So, so I think I think it's going to be either either Edith or Valletta. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be Senlin. Senlin doesn't have the capability. I'm still betting on Senlin. I think see, here's what I, I think. think. Yeah, I, I, think I agree. Whatever, I don't think he has the capability. See, I think what's going to happen is that Edith or Valletta will become the new Sphinx, perhaps Edith with Valletta as her little um supernatural assistant. But I think the real, the, what Senlin's going to do is whatever's on the Bridge of Babel, whatever like this like like purpose beyond the tower is, I think that's going to become his vision. I think whatever that is, is going to be assigned to him. And I don't know what that is. Because they said that the project isn't done and that it has to keep, like, and they said that like, like the bridge isn't complete, the bridge needs to be finished and like all of that stuff from like a few books ago. So I think it's going to be Senlin's job to finish it. And I think Edith mm -hmm. will continue to be the Sphinx and like maintain the tower that is. And then Senlin will be the one that's like building, building the, the new tower. That could be. That's what I think. Cause I don't think Senlin could just maintain and build. He's well, not going back to, cause now we're getting into like theories or whatever. Not that I don't want to talk about that, but going back to, you know, what actually happened. Redelman has also, you know, I've talked so much about how much I have just so, so much enjoyed and, and continued to grow to enjoy Byron, right? Like, it's like, I never didn't like him, but the the more I read, the more I'm just like, oh, Byron. Yes. But Redelman is one of those has characters. Taken the truly hate to absolutely adore journey. Yeah. And, and Redelman is one of those characters who... Jonathan and I talked quite a bit about him, I believe, in the last episode. Again, yeah, I, 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 where he's he's got a good arc, as far as I can tell, right? Because mm -hmm. at this point, we find we find out so much more about him. We we learn quite a bit in the Hod King, or the, the sort of toward the end of the Hod King, about him. But he's involved in helping Valida. Because he knows what it's like to have the Sphinx's medium literally running through your veins. And we find out from wh when they take in the injured refugees that he used to be a doctor. And he still remembers things from that life. And he's also just... He has the curiosity of a toddler. Yeah. The fascination with the world that a child does. While also being an adult and understanding like grown-up things and being able to do grown-up things so it's like a very interesting contrast because he has like the naivete of a child in the sense of like that wonder but he doesn't have the naivete in the sense that like he is naive about the cruelties of the world 
Like he's very much knows both. And that's a weird combination to have mm -hmm. in most characters. Cause like usually when people learn about the world and its cruelties, cough, Senlin, cough, they lose that childlike wonder and that glee and that like desire to learn that glee, I think is the word I'm looking for. They they lose that. And Redelman has both, which is just such a weird combo. Cause like one step he's like lobotomizing people. And the next step he's like, I found a bird. And the next step he's like, I'm a pilot now. And the next step he's like, snails are cool. And the next step he's like, here you go, I'm your doctor. And the next step he's like, actually I've been seeing the future this whole time and the past, mostly the past. Nami doesn't know why she said the future. That was wrong. But yeah, that's my Rattleman impression. He's all over the place and I love him. I don't know if he deserves love, Nami. I, I think I love him now because it's very clear that like after he got his like treatment and all of that, that he is nowhere near the same person before. He is I love him because I see in him every murder hobo D D character that's chaotic that I've ever made. Well, <laughs> I think what I really what I really like about his character arc or whatever is that or maybe not character arc but I'm trying to find I I'm trying to find a way to explain sure. this without saying anything I should like I I saying anything wrong right but it, it was very clear that he became what he was because of the people he was hanging around and I, I the thing is he wasn't even doing that by choice right he was assigned to the baths he was he was stuck with the commissioner his head everything was warped i mean and he was already there's already that whole extra thing of the medium is flowing through his veins and it's causing other issues and then you he gets placed with he gets placed somewhere where he is under the maybe not control but guidance. leadership of guidance yeah of somebody who is clearly super problematic and and so it's a very it, it, it's a very roundabout testimony to the fact that somebody can be in a sense raised by a person or people who are dangerous and problematic and come out the other side bad but how there is always a way for them to be reset and i don't mean that in i mean obviously his reset was very physical and you know in your face and like he, he was basically dead again and reincarnated but i still think that it there it speaks to that idea that you can have these things put in your mind and they can warp the way you think and how you act. But then if you just end up that you can be reset with the with the right influences or whatever. Right. I think it's also very much a commentary on the fact that like certain types of people can be, but also mm -hmm. like not every type of person is this type of person. And I think that's also like a very, like, I think both of those are, like, really good points because, like, yeah, a lot of, like, some people can be saved, but a lot of people, but, like, it does take a specific type of person to be saved mm -hmm. and it takes a specific type of environment to be saved. Mm -hmm. Because, like, I think what is unique about Rattleman is the fact that, like, he is very much, like, naive and curious 
And I think that's the parts of him that was able to be easily led astray. And that's the part is parts of him that's like easily able to be guided. But I think that if he was actually like, if he had any sort of like vindictiveness in his body or like mm-hmm. desire to cause pain, like it wouldn't matter that he was naive and curious. Like that would yeah. prevent him from being reshaped in this yes. way. Yes. Yeah, except, yeah. except that some of the ways he injured the people when he was fighting, I thought were pretty vindictive. I don't think that was vindictive. I think that was just, I I think what I, I also think at that point he was still new to this new body almost, or this new mind and this new situation. Um, it's very difficult to say if he was without being in his head because mm-hmm. this universe that Bancroft has created is a universe where even the good guys are forced to be vindictive and cruel in how they attack and like, like oh Edith, yeah, right. Like she's so like, so like because we know like what the Sphinx that Edith does and like what they sort of expect in a way of like protecting their own. It's reasonable to assume that Redelman would have just done whatever he could which he thought was the most effective to keep them safe which to him ended up being that but also in a way that sort of goes back to that naivete because he doesn't understand in a way what is cruel so that's sort of what i'm what i'm what i sort of saw with that because oh yeah it was absolutely horrific and over the top and like lobotomizing people like jesus fuck rattleman sit the fuck down buddy but like at the same time like it's very clear to see that like all of these things he's doing it's like it's like if you if you told a toddler these ants are gonna kill your ladybug pet kill the ants and the toddler was like smash ants you know except in this case the ladybug friend is the state of the art and it's like people and the ants are you know humans well and and what you're saying really go like like ties into how edith feels when she is choking the life out of oh gosh i can't remember if it's kale or the other one the the one whose name none, none of us can remember the 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 Wakeman who's got the whole metal body Lord, the trunker guy it starts with a th i think i don't think whatever it doesn't matter but you know she she's like i know that this guy that this guy needs to go right but at the same time i don't want to be this person who does this thing so I don't now while I don't think Rettleman thought like that by any means, because you know, that scenario in the Hod King where he is just stabbing them in the brain, he's like, ha, 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 ha. but again, like you said, it, it, there's a difference between his mind, which is like you said, like kind of almost like a toddler, especially at that point. And I, I think he is learning or remembering more about what he what and who he was as time goes on and he was still pretty new at that point. So I'm not sure if he ever would fully become not like that because the way I'm seeing Rettleman right now is as like a completely chaotic neutral mm-hmm. character. He's very Maybe much chaotic like, evil. I don't neutral. know. Neutral. No, definitely not evil. Not evil because see, mm. here's the difference. If he was chaotic evil, it wouldn't matter that he was with good people he would still be evil. It is because he is neutral. And and I think the thing with him is that he doesn't, I feel like to him, like it's very reasonable to say that he either doesn't understand or has no way to comprehend 
morality and therefore he goes with the morals of the people who are around him which is why he's good now a part of me also believes that if he ended up with marat again uh, by some crazy happenstance that he could easily become evil again i think redelman is so like true middle of the line neutral without comprehension of either side that he sort of is just doing whatever is around him and i think that's the reason he was able to change right now because he is he is only chaos no morality yeah i think you're right there what happened if take chaos put juice in veins <laughs> <laughs> well, like well, uh, then, then, then you get you, well. You, Valida is also Valida is chaotic good. It, yeah, I, I think Valida's yeah. always been chaotic good, but now she's like extra chaotic good because she has no like she she has apparently has no self preservation. It scares like her. Qualify. I would like to requalify her as chaotic idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, gosh. And there's so much good stuff between, like, you know, Iron is all just, what did you do to my friend? And I gosh, like so, there's so the much with Valida here. Want to delay the Valida conversation to next week or yeah, next session as well. Weeks, yeah. Just because there's a lot of really good Valida content in the second part that John hasn't gotten to yet that I don't want to discuss in detail because I think it makes the Valida journey, like, even more interesting. And I think. There is so much happening with Valida that I really want to know John's thoughts and I don't want to jump into it right now because also I would like to mostly talk about the fact that Erin Aaron and Anne are just like happy old girlfriends and they're having a good time. And frankly, that's an easier conversation to have now than all of Valida's stuff, which is well, and I also I can say I can say that having finished the book, there's quite a bit about Valida's journey that is would be better to talk about at the end. Okay, yeah, that's actually perfect then because like, I feel like everything that's happening with Valida right now is really building up to something bigger. And I think mm -hmm. we've just gotten like onto the cusp of like starting to figure out what it is. And I'm really excited to figure out more, but also like I want John to be here to like vibe with us about this, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, and, yeah, and on top of that, yeah, we're, 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 we're getting to the hour and a half mark. And like you said, Iron and Anne. So oh. we we have we have waxed poetic about Anne in the past two episodes, right? I'm so glad. And you I had to meet so you, you had to miss them. And we love Listen, Anne. Anne is the real reason I wasn't here for Hod King is because I'm not about millipedes, and the fact that the Hod King is a millipede meant that I couldn't join the discussion emotionally. <laughs> JK, work ate me, but you know, technicalities. Please continue, Anne. As but well. yeah, we 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 have waxed poetic about Anne so much because is there anything not to like about Anne? Have no. we like not yet? Right, not yet. And I can tell <laughs> you, you know, at least through through the end of of the, the portion of this book that we're covering, no, John, like like, and I, I I'm yeah. I'm sure Nani agrees with me. She has one moment where she succumbs to fear, but frankly, like, yeah, no. If she if she didn't succumb to fear at that point, I would have been freaked out. I would have been like, this does not follow for your character, young lady. You should be very alarmed. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's that's her. that's when the so Duke is, is is attacking yeah. them. I just and... want her and Iron to happily hide in a closet and make out. Like, that's just what I want for them. Like they do that. At least I 
Exactly. Twice? They do that at least twice, I think. I also want them to adopt me. Like, but like as grandmothers specifically, because while they're definitely like mother age for me, I get big grandma energy from Anne while also like picturing her as like not actually a grandma because she's still like clearly like spry working age and Iron's like maybe only 50, you know? Yeah, I, I would guess that Iron is, is, but I, I would say 50 to 60. I, I would, I think she might be closer to 60. Yeah, um, I'm taking Iron at 55 because my mother is 53 and she is perimenopausal, not menopausal. Yeah, I, I, I picture Anne as being like 45, I think, and mm-hmm. Iron being, let's say 55. Let's say 55. And yeah, like, they. That's very cute for them. And poor Iron has just been, has had no love in her life. And then this. She just has a rebellious daughter. And then this. And like her, like they just, she gets Anne and Anne is so good. And like, listen, like Iron, Iron, despite everything, like despite everything about her past where she was kind of forced to do all these things that she clearly didn't like all the, all the time, if ever. Iron is a good person too, but Anne has just been living her life trying so hard for all of these shitty families that she's had to be the nanny for. I just, I love the two of them and I just want them to uh, have like warm, cozy, like I want, I want to picture them like in a cabin in the mountains with snow and they're just cuddling by the fire, right? Just happy and content. I just, want, I just want like a little like scene where like Anne like kind of like puts a blanket over Iron, and she like gives her a hug, and then Iron gives her a hug. It's really cute. I love them. If uh, anything happens to them, I will kill myself and everybody in this room. <laughs> we will riot if anything happens to Iron. My or nine reference, and also only there is nobody else in my physical room, so the the virtual room. <laughs> Suffice. What were you gonna say, Jonathan? Well, no, I'm, I'm saying, I'm just thinking. At least a couple of these characters, I think, are doomed. But I don't. I just have no idea which ones. Listen, if they bury the old lesbians, I will be very upset. I will write a strongly worded letter to Bancroft and be like, "You killed my lesbian grandmothers! How dare you!" Well, and also, you know, I, I just don't. No, are they old enough to be grandmothers? I guess they are. I mean, I, no, they're I, not. I think- I, well, they wouldn't be my grandmothers, but if I, I am at an age where I could have a toddler. So yes, they are old enough to be grandmothers because yeah, they could yeah. be my mother. Oh my God. I could have a toddler. Treat <laughs> 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 into the neck of my shirt. Cause that's not, not Nami, how old are you? Are you I'm 27. Okay. So I thought, I thought you were younger than Talia. You're a year older. Okay. No, I'm older than Talia. My, I was three years old when my mom was 27, or maybe I was two years old, something like that. Not great. Terrible. Terrible. Who would give me a toddler? That would be a terrible decision. Yeah, should not no, be allowed no, to give you. Something <laughs> 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 it works quite well. I shouldn't say it usually does not work quite that way. It is exactly um, that word choice that further I, shows I, how much I shouldn't have a toddler. <laughs> Okay, so on that note, <laughs> not not to change the subject, we're, we're running we're running kind of long here. So uh, we we 
get to what well, I mean we we saw so many so many other ringdoms in this the first couple parts of this book uh the the gambling den was really crazy how they've just kept building out the port and it's so dangerous and then it gets destroyed and, and also they're all nudists they're all well, nudists. I, I was gonna say how, how to turn this into an r-rated film yeah, they're all nudists, but they live like in glass houses. Like an actual horror story scenario. <laughs> and then, then there's the cistern, which we meet Tane. Tane, I'm pretty sure is his name, who yeah. is actually a good guy, like good leader, like just trying to protect his people and like everything about the cistern. It's like there. It, it's one of the is it the first ringdom we've come across where they're actually like trying to just live life and be good? I think this is the first ringdom that has evolved beyond the we just yeah. saw. They've evolved to they have they did they the, learn their lessons and then they learned their lesson and mm -hmm. then they're like we're just trying to do better now and everybody else is still at the somewhere between we just suck and some are starting to learn their lesson but mostly they just suck. And then we get to Cilicia, which is like the vineyard, basically. And oh my God, I, I don't even, there's so much to unpack there because like the queen literally destroys her own ringdom by digging into the wall and like, like letting the sewage flood the city. And then she's like, bye forever, like sails off on her ships and yep. Oh is gosh, it, 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 it's but like also isn't that what all our rulers are doing to our? It, it, it's it's just a lot of it, it, we we get so many new ringdoms so quickly, and we learn a good bit about them. But here's the thing: we get so many ringdoms, no new ringdoms, so quickly that I had straight up forgot about the nudists in the glass houses. Like that's how many we got. Like yeah. straight up nudists in glass houses did not even make a lasting impression because we got so many. <laughs> It's Vegas, but oh no! <laughs> but if you go to Vegas and everything is glass, that's so, so much for what happens in Vegas, right? <laughs> what happens in Vegas is known by absolutely everybody in Vegas because secrets are evil. <laughs> and and okay, so so at the end, we are left with Marat has Senlin still and his wakeman and they are they they are in the sphinx's lair they burrow up into the sphinx's lair and the state of the art is still the state of the art with its same old crew because fuck you duke pell you're dead now and i and we don't really know what's going on with adam since the he's end in, of like the very first part he's, he's in god jail Last we know, he's standing on a stool with a noose around his neck with Runa next to him. And I, I guess on that note, last like last thoughts about what you think is coming or I don't want to theorize too much, I think, but more so just I, I don't know about the, the first two parts, because the first two parts of this book, unlike the previous books where it was kind of. A little bit more than half and then the last this is exactly 72 percent, according to my kindle yes yeah yeah so it, it, it was a lot and there it, there's going to be so much for us to talk about once the book is done because I, I think there's a bunch of this that 
including the Valida thing, like everything that's going on with Valida that we need to come back to. But it was it was a lot. There's a lot packed into the first two parts of this book. I part of me is almost like maybe the maybe some of the earlier books weren't long enough or maybe there should have been like it should have been a five book series i don't know because if this had ended where it ended with part two slash the fourth chapter of the belly of the beast i i i think i would have been okay with that it would have been a crazy cliffhanger and everything but i don't know i i i there's a lot. Guess, the more I'm like looking at how much we have left in this book, the more I'm starting to realize that we're definitely not getting all the answers. We are not getting all the answers. The book yeah. is going to end on some sort of big reveal. And I'm suspecting, you know, some like cursory falling action for just, you know, for like the, the sake of like decorating the cake a little bit. But mm -hmm. I suspect we're going to end up with like answers to a lot of things we've been wondering, but more questions. And I know this is the last book in the series, technically, but I suspect I'm going to end this series and be like, I want more. Which is, I don't know, to me, that's, it's like, it, that's a good thing, I think. Like, I think it depends. I think it can, I think I can like it or dislike it, depending on how it's done by the author. I'm usually the type of person that I want everything, like, I do want the author's answers to everything because I want to know what the author was thinking for specifically for all these things. But I also, like at times if it's done well i can value an open-ended world and a world mm. that ends without all the answers like i said like i really loved how despite giving us so many answers broken earth trilogy ended with like sort of like an open-ended like way of the where things could go forward and i didn't feel the urge for like i didn't feel like i needed more for that and i feel like i feel like it's definitely going to be a ending without all the answers i'm just very interested to know if i'm going to be the sort of per if, if it's going to be the sort of ending where i'll be like happy to theorize about it or if i'll be like no i want bancroft's answers because <laughs> that's yeah. a question for me but well, I'm, gonna, I'm taking bets edith is going to be the sphinx now because like you reminded me of the byron conversation yeah i think, I, I think it's going to end with edith as the sphinx i don't know about the rest of them if Edith survives, yeah, I, I think she, that's. Oh God, I didn't even think about that. That's a good point. Shit, yeah. If Edith survives, she'll be the Sphinx. I think Redelman's doomed. I, I yeah, mean, that, I just... that makes sense. That makes it sense. makes sense. But, mm, I think like, like I don't know. I like him, but, but I think Adam's. I think you're Adam's right. doomed. You gotta be also. Right. Yeah, I think Adam might be yeah. in trouble. I think, I th well, I think either Adam or Valida. Oh my God, guys! I just realized who Redelman reminds me of. There is that one TikTok of like that toddler that's like running across like this picnic setup, and the mom goes, "What do you have there?" and and the toddler screams, "A knife!" and the mom goes, "No!" <laughs> Redelman's the kid with the knife. Oh Lord. Okay. On that note, I'm gonna do what I've been doing the past couple, few episodes, whatever, and close it out with a quote. Byron hated tea. He hated its bitter taste and the tannic dryness it inspired in the mouth. He hated the smell of it, an aroma like soured wood pulp, and he hated the stains it left in his cups and on his tablecloths. Yet he drank it because he absolutely adored tea time. He loved the little sandwiches and their excessive variety, loved the sugar cubes and their precious tongs. He loved the jewels of jelly and the crowns of toast. So cute. So cute. <sighs> and on that note. <laughs>
<laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode on parts one and two of The Fall of Babel. I'm Tara, along with fellow host Jonathan Anami. We will be back in two weeks to talk about the final section of The Fall of Babel, as well as kind of give our review of the series as a whole. And we'll see you then. Thank you for listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Sagas and Sass.